And we're going to talk about a church today, the church at Pergamum, Pergamum. And we've talked about Ephesus, we've talked about Smyrna, but today we're going to talk about Pergamum. And it has its challenges. But what I want you to, what I want you to take away from today is I want you to just remember that word compromise. We're going to talk about it today. And this is a message. This, this is really important because I think sometimes we look at this and say, well, you know, what in the world does this have to do with anything? This is the 21st century. And, you know, and you're talking about these churches that were, were there's 21 centuries ago. Big deal. What does it have to do with me? How am I going to live this out tomorrow? Well, I believe that these churches are not the messages that Jesus gives to the churches 21 centuries ago have application for us today. And no more so than today's uh, conversation that we're going to have together. I want you to look with me at Revelation chapter number 2. I'm going to begin reading verse 12. And there's, it's available for you in your worship guide as well as on the screen. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse number 12. To the angel of the church at Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for your word. Speak life to us today. Encourage us from these amazing, amazing truths and principles from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Pergamum. It was the farthest north of the cities of Asia that Jesus addresses. It was built upon a, about a thousand foot, about a thousand foot uh, mountaintop. It would look over a very fertile valley. It was about 20 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. It was a beautiful city. It was a magnificent city, as a matter of fact, known for its architecture. Uh, there was a, an amphitheater. Uh, you can see that on the, on the one picture. That's the ruins of Pergamum. An amazing amphitheater. You look at it up close, it's just crazy. And then the artist's renditions give you some of the architecture. Architecture. Pergamon boasted of one of the largest libraries in the world at the time, about 200,000 volumes. It was second only to the library in Alexandria in Egypt. Amazing place. The altar to Zeus that had been built was one of the seven wonders of the world. There were temples to all the major deities of the Greek pantheon, Zeus having an altar, uh, Dionysus, Athena, and uh, one that was the god of medicine whose name was Asclepius. We'll talk about him in a little bit. This was in 29 BC. This was the first city in Asia given permission by the Romans to build a temple to Roman worship, to a, a living Roman emperor. That, they were the first. So it became a place that was very difficult for believers to live and to exist. And in many respects, it rivals or, or it mirrors our culture today. More and more things are becoming more difficult for us as followers of Christ to live a life that honors God. So in this context, Jesus writes a message to a church not unlike the church 
even Crossroads Church today. So what I want to do is I want to walk through the passage, give a few thoughts and then some application to the end. The first is this, the description of Jesus. The description of Jesus. He is, what we read is that he is the one who holds a double-edged sword in his hand. A double-edged sword. I don't know if you watch the History Channel. I do from time to time. And there is a program on the History Channel called Forged in Fire. And Forged in Fire is a kind of a a lack of, it's a reality show, it's a game show, I don't know what you call it, it's kind of a reality game, whatever it is, but they're making swords and knives is what it is. Now, honestly, I don't get the point. Come on. Point, sword, knives. Come on, work with me here. Work with me here. And here's here's the reason I don't get it. We don't live within a sword culture, do we? I mean, it's not, this. we're not sore, I guess you could say we're not sword savvy. And that's understandable. Our technology has moved beyond that. Now we have presentation swords and those kinds of things. And even this, this is a kind of a hobby, a craft. I get all of that. But so to us, when we read of something like Jesus has a double-edged sword in his hand, the imagery is somewhat lost on us. But it would not have been lost on the first century. They got it. But they also understood this, is that Rome... Rome would wield the power of the sword. And the power of the sword meant life, death, and judgment. So they, they know this from their context. So now they see that the description of Jesus is that he holds a double-edged sword. So it says a number of things to the believers in Pergamum that would have been an encouragement to them. The first is that this sword would discern truth. You have to understand, the sword represents the word of God, and which penetrates, which penetrates the soul and the spirit. It reveals right and wrong, and I love this. It reveals right and wrong, no matter, and hear this carefully, no matter how foggy the issues of our lives might be. The writer of Hebrews would say this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than a sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes, listen to this, it exposes the innermost, our innermost thoughts and desires. I wonder, I wonder, do we have a hesitation to really study and meditate and read the Word of God because it cuts too hard, too close to our heart? It begins to point out those things that we think. It points out the areas of our life that are in direct conflict to God's standard of righteousness. Are we hesitant? I hope and I pray that it is never the case. My prayer is, is that when we read God's word and it begins to cut between the joint and the marrow, between the soul and the spirit of our life, we say, yes, Lord, I hear what you're saying and I respond to your word. That's my hope. You see, to the believers in Pergamon, they would have understood the, the, the imagery that Jesus is wielding this two-edged sword that would cut to the heart and to the spirit. But also, but also, the, the second part of this, not only does it discern truth, but it punishes evil. And, and please, please know this, that, that's a hard way of saying it. But understand, Rome wielded the power of the sword, which was judgment which was authority. But I want you to know, all authority in heaven and on earth belong to Jesus Christ. 
And the, and the believers in Pergamum were dealing with difficult things, more difficult than you and I can even imagine. They were in fear for their lives. They were in fear for the confiscation of their property. They were in fear that they could even find another meal for another day. And Jesus says, I hold a two-edged sword in my hand. All authority belongs to me. So significant. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. says, from his mouth, and this is Jesus. This is the appearance of Jesus at his second coming. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. Judgment and authority reside in Christ. So the description that Jesus gives of himself as one who holds a double-edged sword. The second thought this morning is the church is commended. Commended. I don't know if you've ever been commended for something you've done. Military accommodation. That's pretty significant. I I know this. When somebody says something nice or gives me an attaboy, it feels pretty good. You know, pat on the back once in a while is okay. It feels all right. And it's humbling when somebody says something kind or, or, or there's a commendation. And I'm pretty sure to the church, to the believers in Pergamon, this commendation would have been an encouragement to them. And the first part of that commendation is this, is that he knows where they live. You say, now, why is that significant? Because of the description. He says, I know where you live. You live where Satan dwells. You live where Satan's throne is. Now, that's pretty significant. That doesn't sound like the most uh, wonderful neighborhood to be a part of. But what's cool is that Jesus knows where they live. He knows where they live. Remember I mentioned the, uh, the Greek god of medicine, Asclepius? I want you to take a look at this statue. If you'll notice the staff that Asclepius holds in one hand, a serpent is wrapped around that staff. I, I, I would suggest to all of us this morning, the church at Pergamon knew exactly what Jesus was referencing when he says, I know where you live, I know this is the place that Satan dwells. This is where he has his throne. This could have been Zeus's altar, the top god in the Greek pantheon. I understand that. But more than likely, he was speaking of Asclepius and saying, take a look at the snake and remember who your adversary is. I know where you live. Genesis chapter 3, the snake was the most clever of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. The snake spoke to the woman and said, Woman, did God really tell you that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Again, the believers in Pergamum would have picked up this imagery. And then Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 2, just to reinforce the fact for all of us, the angel grabbed the dragon. And look at this, the old, the old snake who is the devil and Satan and tied him up for a thousand years. Understand, God, Jesus knows exactly where you live this morning. Be encouraged today, no matter how intense your life is, no matter how difficult things are or how hard your circumstances are, Jesus knows your address. He knows where you are. And he has all the authority over all of those things in your life. Be encouraged today. Be encouraged. Say, Gary, I... Stuff's just upside down. I get it. So does Jesus. He knows where you live. 
I'm grateful for that. The second thing that they're commended for is that they remained faithful. I, I, I love that. They remained faithful. And there's a man that's mentioned in this message. His name is Antipas. Antipas, by some, was considered to be the first person who surrendered his life or gave his life or martyred for the faith in Asia. That's, un, you know, that's unsubstantiated, but that's, that's one possible theory. Another theory of Antipas is that he represents everyone who would ever give their life because of their faith. But the point is, is that they, Jesus is very clear to them. He says, you've remained true to my name. Even though where, I know where you live, you live where Satan lives. You, you live kind of where the throne of Satan is. I know that, but you've remained faithful under the pressure and the difficulty of being a person of faith. Can we just be honest for a minute? They lived in a very toxic society. But I'm here to tell you, we live in a toxic society. I I cannot, Marcy and I were chatting, we've been chatting about this a lot. I can't remember a time, especially in the last 18 months, where things have just spun so challenging away from what I have grown to expect and believe and here in our own country. I know I've said it, if I've said it once, I've probably said it a half a dozen times. I am absolutely appalled at what is happening in regards to the unborn in our country. God forgive us. God forgive us. And it's not just that. It's There are so many things that are just spinning away from what we know as righteousness. We live in a toxic society. It's becoming more so every day. And I think about this idea of remaining faithful, and I'm not proud of what I'm going to say, but I, I don't think I speak only for myself. I can remember a time when I was less than vocal and upfront about my faith. In fact, in my mind's eye, right at this very moment, I can see an occasion where I'm having a conversation. When I was in high school, or just out of high school, I think I just started, just getting ready to start, go off to college. I remember having a conversation and not being completely upfront about my faith, even though I was asked very directly about it. And I wasn't. I'm not proud of that. And I look back at those moments and I say, you know something, I wasn't really true to his name. We sang a couple of moments ago these words, I'm not ashamed of the one who saved my soul. And I, my hope would be is that every time we sing that song, those lines in that song are the loudest lines that you can ever sing. And let it be truly said of us that we are not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. That we will stand true to our faith in Christ no matter how toxic our culture becomes. What what is so amazing to me is that Jesus, I know where you live, I know how difficult things are, and I want us to know, Jesus knows how difficult things are. He knows how our society is spiraling out of control and away from the things of God. He knows that, but we are called to remain true and faithful to his name in spite of it. And he calls us faithful. Listen Matthew chapter 10, stand up for me against world opinion. 
Now this is a paraphrase, but it's powerful. It's to stand up for me against world opinion, and I'll stand up for you before my Father in heaven. Now listen to this. If you turn tail and run, you think I'll cover for you? Wow. The answer is no. We are to remain faithful to Christ, even when things become toxic. And in Romans chapter 1, I'm going to say it again. It's such a great passage. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. I want us to never be ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. No matter how difficult things may come, we need to stand and remain true and faithful to Christ. So I would just say, how are we doing with this? How are we doing with this? I, 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 I came across a phrase that I heard back, I don't know, a lot of years ago. And I wrote it down even in my notes this morning, and I just share it with you. If you were accused for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's a powerful thought, isn't it? How are we doing with that? Are we remaining true to faith? There's a commendation that Jesus gives. It's an attaboy, girl. Way to go. And he does so because he knows where we live, and they've remained faithful. The third thought this morning is that there's correction needed. It's a great description of Jesus, and then there's a commendation, but then there's correction that's needed. When I was in college, uh, I, had a, I had a very part-time job uh, doing yard, yard maintenance for a, a, a care facility. Now, let me just say, I hate yard work in every way, shape, and form. I don't even like getting paid for it. I didn't like this job, but I got this job. Well, I got fired. It was the happiest day of my week. I got fired. Now, I, I worked there a whole one day and got fired, so I can tell you how good I was doing. I didn't really care. I, honestly, I really didn't care. And honestly, I'm over it. I'm good with it. But, you know, and, but the person who fired me, she wasn't particularly nice to me when she did. And she gave me some really stinging remarks. Now, regardless that that was a happy day for me, anytime there are stinging remarks, it kind of hurts. No matter what, and even however good a face you put on, it still hurts when somebody, and when somebody kind of tells you these things. But I'm going to say it even hurts more when it's true. Right? Well, Jesus commends them, but then he says this, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Ouch. I, I, let me just say, I, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, I'm really glad Jesus loves us so much that he tells us the truth. It really does speak to his love and his grace and his mercy in our lives because he tells us the truth. And that's what he does here. And he talks about two things with them. He said, there's a couple of things I hold against you. It, it deals with Balaam and a group called Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans. Now we look at that and we say, I don't have any I have no way to understand this. What, what do they mean? What does he mean? Well, first, Balaam is an Old Testament character who was hired by a king by the name of Balak. And you can read the story, Numbers 22 and 23. He was hired by a king to curse the people of God. So Balaam, so Balaam gets up to curse the people of God, and all he can do is bless them. And Balak gets all ticked off at him. What are you doing? I, I hired you to curse them, and you're blessing them. He does it three times. It's just crazy. And in the midst of that, there's one of the funniest stories in all of the Bible about Balaam's donkey. He's riding his donkey, 
and the donkey won't go any farther and runs into the wall and crushes his leg against the wall. Balaam gets off of the donkey and begins to beat the donkey, and then God opens the donkey's mouth, and they have a conversation. And what always I laugh every time I read it, Balaam shows no, it's not a surprise that he's carrying on a conversation with the donkey. Now, I want to tell you something. If the donkey that I come in contact with starts talking to me, either I'm nuts or I'm certainly not just going to sit there and carry on a conversation like nothing's happening. It's just hilarious to me. But what happens later is that while the curse didn't work on the people of God, Balaam convinced Balak to do this. Infiltrate, infiltrate with sexual immorality, pagan worship, and idolatry. See what happens. It happened, and God had to judge the people of God because of it. Balaam. The same kind of thing is happening at Pergamum. Some who are calling themselves followers are now engaged in things like eating food sacrificed to idols. Although we, don't may, we may not understand that, that would be a pagan ritual and it would be completely contrary to the things of God. They were involved in sexual immorality, probably with temple worship because all of the temples would have had temple prostitution connected to their worship. So now there's immorality. There are things that are happening that are totally contrary to the things of God. And Jesus said, I have this against you. Some of you are doing this. Well, in fact, when he speaks of Balaam, it really becomes a prototype of all corrupt teachers who betrayed believers, hear this, into fatal compromise with worldly ideologies. It's the word compromise. Well, then what about the teaching of the Nicolaitans? It's very similar to what has been proposed from the teaching of Balaam. But these were believers. These were individuals who called themselves Christ followers who let their freedom in Christ just do everything. I'm free in Christ so I can go do this. I'm free in Christ so I can do this. Even though, even though it's contrary to the righteous standard of God. I'm okay. I can just do it. And Jesus, no, he can't. No, he can't. You, you see, this is a Christian group that abused their freedom in Christ by accommodating, accommodating their doctrine and conduct. Now hear this, and conduct to the culture in which they lived. They were compromising their faith. Compromise, there's a simple definition for you, is giving into something in order to receive something else. Giving into something in order to receive something else. This can be favor, special treatment, any number of things. Now, I understand that in business and politics, and, and, and compromise is just kind of the way of the world. I get that. But with faith, it's unacceptable. Compromise, hear this, and write this down. Compromise always reduces the effectiveness of our lives and testimony. I need to say it again. Compromise always reduces the effectiveness of our lives and testimony. We are to influence culture, not be influenced by it. We are to be influenced by culture, 
or we are to influence culture, not be influenced by Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 19. This is how the Lord responds. If you return to me, I will restore you so you can continue to serve me. If you speak good words rather than worthless ones, you will be my spokesman. You must influence them. Do not let them influence you. We must be careful. We must be careful to distinguish between appropriate interaction with culture and compromise with culture. Craig Keener wrote a great commentary in the book of Revelation. This is what he wrote, and I want you to hear it carefully. It's just a paragraph. When we value, don't miss this, when we value what the world does, instead of valuing the kingdom, we forfeit our role as witnesses for Christ. Too much, too much of Western Christianity has become indistinguishable from our culture in an effort, in an effort toward persuading the world that we are acceptable because we are just like them. God help us and God forgive us when there can be no distinguishing mark between us as the church of Jesus Christ and the culture that is around us. When we accommodate to the culture, we have lost our testimony to this world who desperately needs the good news of Jesus Christ. It also causes us to be shamed when we talk about Jesus. We won't talk about it because we don't want to be known with that group. When the opposite should be absolutely true. Jesus corrected the church at Pergamum for their compromise and allowing paganism and immorality to go unrestrained. The, third, the next is that it's a great description of Jesus and there's commendation, there's correction that's needed, but what's the response? There's a necessary response. There are seven churches in Asia that the messages of Jesus are given to. Five of those seven, hear this, I, these things, some of these little details for me stand out to me as being not coincidental, but I believe there's a purpose. Five of the seven are called to repent. Five of the seven. So it says that f- literally the majority, could it be that the majority of attendees in those churches could be in need of repentance. Could it be, could it be that the majority of attendees in church today could be in need of repentance? So let's just, I don't want, this could be a fallacious argument, I understand that. I'm not trying to make, but I just want us to consider the implications of this. Could it be that five out of every seven individuals in the church this morning that are sitting at Crossroads Church are in need of repentance. Are we in need of repentance? I'm not saying you. I am saying us. Us. In the Old Testament, the words that are used for repentance are mentioned, are you ready for this? Are mentioned a thousand times. A thousand times. There are a number of words that speak to repentance. Now you drill down a little deeper into the etymology of the word repentance and you find that the definition of repentance from turning from evil, turning from evil and a turning towards God is used 164 times. So it's about 10% or so. 
say, well, okay, what does that mean? Well, this is what I would take. My point is simply this. God was calling his people to repent first before anyone else. All as Israel was called to repentance, so are we. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse number 14, you know it very well, but it says, If then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and restore their land. Understand that message is to the people of God. It is not to those outside the faith. It is inside. This is an insider message. Before there can be any repentance, before there can be any turn in our country, in our world, it has to start with the people of God. Before anything, Ezekiel 18, therefore you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. First Peter chapter 4, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. Make no mistake. America is in the need of a spiritual awakening. God help us. There is no hope for our nation. And there is no hope for our world except Jesus. There's no hope except through the church. But God is calling to the church before he's calling to the world. Until God gets a hold of our hearts and breaks our hearts, And we get right with God until we cease to compromise. And we cannot expect an awakening in America. It begins with us. Until then, our influence will be limited and our testimony weakened. God is calling to us as the church of Jesus Christ to repent. To repent. Lastly, there's a reward for obedience. Now, I go to Starbucks a few times a week, and I uh, drink coffee. I like coffee. Probably had a little too much this morning, but I like it. (laughs) I may drink some more before the day is over. I don't know. We'll see. You know, what's cool about Starbucks is you have a a rewards program, rewards card, so Every time I get 125 points, or I, get a, I get a free whatever. It's pretty cool. I love those rewards. And make no mistake, so do you. Whether it's Starbucks, you like the reward. You like rewards. It's all good. I'm with you. But you know something? I don't go to Starbucks for the rewards. I go for the coffee. You see, I don't obey Christ. I don't repent. I don't follow him because there's a reward. I follow him because of his grace and his mercy. He loves me unconditionally. He's merciful to me. He's good to me. He loves me. I look in the mirror and I say, "How oh, God, can you love me? But he does. That's why I follow him. But there's a reward. And I'm not going to minimize that. And in fact, he points out to the church in Pergamum two different rewards. The first is called, what is a hidden manna? Now, the imagery to them would have been the manna in the desert that God provided for his people. 
you see, it was the, the original superfood. There was no greater food and available to them than manna. And you see, it was sustenance, it was supply. Hear this, it was supply without work. It was supply, and that is really important. It's eternal supply without labor. In other words, God's going to take care of you. You need not be any better than we are, and God still provides. I don't, I don't understand it, but he does. There's a reward when we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Second is a white stone. And this is such a cool, this is such a cool imagery. Stones were used for entrance into the theater. They were used also in the adjudication of, of, of crimes. And what, what's cool is the white stone, the white stone meant acquittal. <laughs> He'll give you a white stone. Not only will you give you a white stone but it'd be one with your name engraved on the back. That the only one who knows who it is is the one to whom it's been given. Do we understand the power of that? There is an eternal supply without labor, and there is a white stone with your name written on it. You belong. You belong to God. If we have ears to hear, so this final thought, when faced with cultural pressure, pressure, don't compromise your faith or the opportunity to influence the world for the kingdom of God. So how, so how are we doing with this? How, how does it all, how is it all working? So, because the reality is if you, we want to overcome the world, if we want to overcome the world, we're going to have to live a life worthy, or excuse me, without compromise. If we're going to overcome the world, we're going to have to live a life without compromise. It's just the reality. And so how might we do that? For a few minutes, I just as we bring our time to a close, I want to talk just about an Old Testament character that I think exemplifies this really well for us. And that's Daniel. And can I, can I just for a moment... I want to talk to the parents for just a second. Because this whole idea of compromises is challenging. And your students and your children are being faced with decisions every day to compromise their faith. Every day. And they may not have the strength and the fortitude at this moment to stand strong and remain true to Jesus. That's where you come in. And why do I say that? Daniel was 15 or 16 years old when he was pulled away from his family. But he was established in faith when he left. And I want to challenge all of the parents in the room, grandparents in the room, when you have opportunities to influence your children for the things of God, influence them for, the, for God himself. Teach them God's word. Raise them in the fear and instruction of the Lord so that when they're older, they will not turn from it, but they will be firmly anchored in the things of God, never to turn away. And they will stand strong in their faith. You see, that's what happened with Daniel. He was a young guy, stripped from everything he knew and put into the service of the most powerful man in the world, Nebuchadnezzar. So there are four things that Daniel, there are four B's that I want to give you. I think it'll be helpful to how we can not compromise our faith. The first is to be determined. 
Daniel was determined to not compromise what he knew was right. Now, understand this. This is a young guy. But there was something deep in his heart that said, no, I'm determined to this. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to back down from this. Listen to Daniel 1, verse 8. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to them by the king. Understand something. He could have said, nobody's ever going to know, nobody's ever going to see, and it's just one little thing. It is no big deal. But Daniel said, no, I will not. Another translation, he resolved not to defile himself with the king's wine. Understand this. It's the small things that lead to the larger challenges. But he was good. He had it. Second was to be confident. Be confident. Daniel served Nebuchadnezzar well. He interpreted dreams. Nebuchadnezzar had a screwy dream. And he couldn't make heads or tails of it. And he asked Daniel, he says, Daniel, would you interpret this dream for me? And in fact, the text says that Daniel, when he was, when he was confronted with it, he, he was... He was alarmed. He didn't know what to do with this. But he went to God and he prayed. And this is Daniel's prayer in chapter 2, verse 20. Praise the name of God forever and ever. Now look at this. Look at all the personal pronouns. For he, for he has all the wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals in mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness. Though he is surrounded by light, I thank and praise you, God, of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Understand, his confidence was not in his wisdom. His confidence was not in his education. His confidence was in God and God alone. Your confidence and my confidence have to be in God. Nothing else. Only we will remain confident. The third is that he was truthful. Be truthful. Now under this same condition, he asked God for wisdom. And now Nebuchadnezzar's had another dream. And Nebuchadnezzar says, tell me what it is. He told Daniel to tell him the meaning. And when Daniel heard understood the meaning. He was alarmed and perplexed because of the message. But Daniel was truthful. And this is what he told the king. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. That's a risk. But he was not ashamed. He was not ashamed of the God in whom his confidence was placed. The fourth is be consistent. Be consistent. Daniel is now serving the Medes and the Persians. And Darius is ready to place Daniel literally as the prime minister of all the leadership. He's going to be in charge of everybody. And those under him that said, this ain't going to happen. This is a foreigner. Not on my way. We got to do something. But we can't find anything wrong with this guy. Think about that for a moment. And they said, if we're going to get him, the only way we can get him is on his faith. Wouldn't it be great if people would say that about us? 
So they went to the king and appealed to the king's pride. Said, sign an edict that says nobody can pray to any God except you for the next 30 days, knowing that Daniel probably wasn't going to let that happen. Sure enough, we read chapter 4, verse 27. Excuse me, chapter 6, verse 10. But when Daniel learned that the law, listen to this. When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, that's significant. Because you learn that the, the law of the Medes and the Persians, once signed in the law, could not be revoked. Why? Because he was a living God. God cannot revoke his own word. So when, it, when he learned, it had been signed. In other words, no change. When he learned it had been signed, he went home. And he knelt down, as usual, in his upstairs room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem. And he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. You see, Daniel was a counter-cultural conduit in an ungodly world. And I want to challenge us this morning to be counter-cultural conduits in this ungodly world. Stand firm in your faith. And just as we said, be determined, be confident, be truthful, be consistent. And you say, okay, Gary, that's all good, but how does it happen? When I think about Daniel, here's what I, these are four very significant qualities, but I wonder, how did he get there? How did he get there? I think he had great mentors. He had amazing parents because they taught him the way of the Lord. Moms and dads, once again, teach your children to follow Jesus. Teach them to follow Jesus. Do whatever you can to get them into the place where God can speak into their life. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes. I think about this, but there had to be a catalyst in Daniel's life. I would suggest it was God's word. Because what his parents and what his mentors would have taught him would have come from the word of God. That's what he would have had. Please understand I want to challenge us, and I say it often, but I, I'm, I'm going to say it again. Be a person of the Word of God. Read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it. Let it fill your life. And understand this, if the Bible calls it sin, it's still sin, no matter what culture may say. One more time, if the Bible calls it sin, it's still sin, no matter what culture may say. Compromise never occurs quickly. It will always lower the bar. And it is the first step towards total disobedience. But God's word will protect you if we hide it in our heart. So I want to read you a passage of scripture. Psalm 119, verse 1. Look at it with me. And I want everyone's eyes and attention either on your or on the screen. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions 
would consistently reflect your decrees. One more time. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please, don't give up on me. Don't give up. And that's my prayer for us this morning. Is there compromise somewhere in your life? I'm not talking about the big things, but I'm talking about the small things. The one cookie. Not the entire package of Oreos. It's the one. It's the one. Is there compromise in your life today? I want you to know something. Jesus knows where you live. He's commending you for not renouncing your faith. He, he says, I'm, I'm with you. I love you just as you are. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. And at times he will commend us, but then he will say, nevertheless, nevertheless. What about this? What about this? Is the Holy Spirit shining a light on something this morning in your heart? I believe he is. And I could not be more excited about what God wants to do because of that. Because he wants us to be a counter-cultural conduit in an ungodly world. We are not to be like the world. We are to be separate from the world. We are not to become so much like it that people cannot tell the difference between us and someone who does not follow Christ. There needs to be a clear line. So this morning, I'll say it again. Compromise. Sit there. Bow your heads with me if you would, Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. You're amazing. Because you tell us the truth and we need it. I need it. So this morning, look into our hearts, Holy Spirit. You hold a two-edged sword in your hand. It's a sharp sword. And it cuts between joint, marrow, soul, spirit. Begins exposes those things of our life. And I really believe as followers of Christ, we don't want. But Lord, no compromise. That's our call this morning.